Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and all your pop culture jollies. Every episode, you get a new feminist to talk about the thing we cannot get off our minds. And today, as your host, you've got me, Nicole Perkins, writer and podcaster, and unfortunately, a sucker for love, romance, and all the juicy parts in between. Today, we're going to get into the death of the sex scene in film and television. Is it really dead? Where has all the on-screen sexiness gone? This topic is very important to me, not only because I am chronically horny online, but I used to co-host a podcast called Thursday Kit, which was all about the ways pop culture shapes desire. I think we all have a movie or a TV show that helped jumpstart our puberty or maybe helped us come to terms with something about ourselves, right? For me, that was the love scene between Prince and Apollonia in Purple Rain. Okay, let me set the scene. They're in the basement together, right? Like his basement apartment. And it's full of music and 80s decor, like puppets and lace and clowns and stuff. Um, And they're on the bed together. He's behind her, fully dressed in his, you know, very romantic, lacy waterfall white shirt and his tight, beautiful pants. Um, And she is in a bustier and a bikini, right? (laughs) As one is. And then he like, he starts kissing on her neck and he runs his fingers like along the seam where her thighs and her underwear meet. And it was, I just was like, oh my God, are they about to do it? I will never forget it for as long as I live. I think it is one of the most sensual moments I have ever seen on screen. And to be honest, I secretly test all of my lovers. I get in that position sometimes with them and I try to see if they're going to imitate it. And if they do, they get a gold star. But the sex scene isn't just a place for us to get our jollies off. Believe it or not, sometimes it's actually an important part of character development and plot. And I am not alone in wondering what has happened to the sex scene and how seeing sex scenes, really good sex scenes, are a vital part of pop culture. Eliana Docterman has also been wondering what has happened to the sex scene. She's a correspondent at Time Magazine who covers culture, society, and gender. Eliana recently wrote a piece that gets to the heart of the matter called, Why Aren't Movies Sexy Anymore? We're going to dig into that question and more right after this quick break. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out our other episodes, too, like last week's about the Hart family murders and the ways the foster care system has failed. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to The Waves, and welcome, Eliana. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I am great. I am very excited to talk about sexy movies and where they went. So am I. So am I. Uh, You recently wrote an article for Time called Why Aren't Movies Sexy Anymore? Why did you decide to write this article at this point in time? 
Yeah, well, this is a question I've been wondering about for a few years now and was sort of percolating for a while. And the reason we ended up doing the story when we did was because of Magic Mike XXL, which felt like sort of the last of a dying breed of movies that actually dealt with sex and sexiness and sex as a motivation. And so I wanted to sort of dig into why we don't see those movies anymore. And there were a few explanations, some more obvious than others. The rise of superheroes was a big one. Um, They've sort of elbowed out all those mid-tier adult dramas that we loved in the 90s. Um, Studios don't really make them anymore. But then there were less obvious answers, too. Like, I sort of ended up delving into uh, Chinese censorship and why when studios are trying to release movies internationally, the China box office is so important. Uh, They end up editing out a lot of sexiness or implied sexiness or anything that could be even vaguely confused with sexiness in hopes that it will be released in China, which will really help the studio's bottom line. So there was just this sort of fascinating uh, confluence of factors that ultimately leads to us seeing a lot more sex on Netflix or on TV shows and a lot less sex in movies. Why do you think it's so easy to lay the blame um, for this rise in sexlessness um, at the foot of superhero movies. What is it about superhero movies that makes them so unsexy? (laughs) Well, I think it's super confusing because everyone in superhero movies is super hot, right? Like these guys get absolutely ripped for 30 seconds of a shirtless scene. And then we never address, okay, but what does that mean? Like Chris Evans is walking around as Captain America and His virginity is a major talking point on the Internet and in the series. And everybody's just confused. Like, how can Captain America look like that? But all of his interactions are so chaste. Um, I think that there's sort of that disconnect. And then there's also whether you buy it or not, this idea that superhero movies are based on comic books, which are written for kids um, and that they're family movies, that they're movies aimed at kids as much as adults. And you may or may not agree with that. And certainly people feel passionately one way or another. But I do think that the movies are aimed at families. So looking back at 2008's Iron Man is sort of wild. I don't know the last time you watched that movie. He's a playboy and he's sleeping with women and Gwyneth Paltrow's character makes some um, not great comments about like taking out the trash and he has you know stripper poles in his airplane you ever lose an hour of sleep your whole life be prepared to lose a few with you and by the time that we get to Avengers Endgame which spoiler alert is the last Avengers movie that Iron Man appears in um, you know he's like a dad he's like a family guy he's very wholesome they've sort of completely redone that character. And I think that that sort of is reflective of everything that happened with superhero movies in that time. We went from being a little more daring and a little more sexy to just the most family-friendly version that they could make so that they could make as much money as possible. There's also something in how comic book heroes, for me, I mean, I I never really read a lot of comic books growing up. I, I, you know, would read some. um, But It seemed like, for the most part, the purpose was to show you that anyone could be a hero. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter, 
your background, anyone can become a hero, right? But then we get to these adaptations on screen and it's like, yeah, but you also have to look really good to be a superhero. (laughs) It's just like, there's a lot of conflicting messages in the superhero movies, I think. A lot of people also argue that it's not necessarily the superhero movies that have flattened sexuality or have been desexed. It's also a result of the... Um, hashtag Me Too movement um, with people becoming more aware of how actors, especially women, have been exploited um, and pushed and coerced into um, scenes that they didn't really want to do, into nudity and other things like that. Do you think that this sexlessness that we're experiencing in Hollywood is an overcorrection um, as a result of the information we've received as a part of the Me Too movement? Oh, yeah, I definitely think it's an overcorrection. And it's a reflection of the people who are making movies are still primarily straight, cis, white men who I think are terrified that sexiness necessarily means sexist. Not to harp on Iron Man, but um, Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow character in Iron Man 2 is introduced literally in a line that calls her a walking sexual harassment lawsuit. That is not good. That is not how that character should have been introduced. That would never happen today. Like, I'm not arguing for um, that sort of gross objectification. And that's a most mild version. The extreme versions being, as you said, women who are literally coerced into sex scenes they didn't want to do, who had them sprung upon them, who were harassed on set. Um, but I think that there is a way to deal with the complexities of sex in an interesting way. And TV is doing that. If you look at something like I May Destroy You or you look at even, I mean, Bridgerton's not the greatest example because the sexual politics are complicated in that show. Bridgerton is a TV show that people like because it is sexy. There is something that is titillating about it that people enjoy. And I think all of those things could happen in movies. But I think that the prevailing feeling is that Movies cost so much to make. The people who are making them are, again, largely men who are scared of being accused of being sexist, um, of being Me Too, that they don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. They don't want to even get close to the topic, even though there are very interesting and subtle and empowering and sexy ways to do sex. So, yeah, I I do think it's an overcorrection. And I think it's also important to talk about this idea that Cis white men who are in control of Hollywood, they still feel like, oh, I can't even say hi to you or else I'm going to get hit with the sexual harassment thing. And so that there is a history of directors and executives using their clout in order to, I don't know, create their own personal agenda of sexuality in these kinds of movies. And I think we just, I don't know, we should get rid of them all. (laughs) I mean, not to be like, not all men, but like there are people like if you something like Magic Mike XXL, Soderbergh is a person who like his characters in a lot of his movies have been motivated by sex, regardless of whether they have sex or not in the movie. Like if you look like at a movie like out of sight, the entire plot of that movie is like George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez want a bone. Like that's the driving force of that movie. And like the it's just like this sort of era of movie stars who were just like we had charisma and there was no way they were going to be on screen together without being attracted to each other. And the entire movie was going to revolve around that. And I think that there are directors of all shapes and sizes and genders that um, are capable of like taking two movie stars like that and finding a way to make a movie 
sexy without it being offensive. Um, Because, like, if you take sex away, it's taking away a color on the palette. It is a reason that people do things in life is because they are thirsty for somebody else that they meet. That is a motivating factor. And if it's just totally removed, then you're not showing the entire human experience. So it's like there are ways to do that. I mean, part of the another aspect of this is sort of the idea of the death of the movie star, that we just don't have movie stars in the way that we used to have movie stars. And I think part of that is that there used to be movies where it was like, let's put Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington in a movie together and people are going to see it to see if they make out in the movie. Now, the movie that I'm talking about, Pelican Brief, they didn't. But I think that that was a big motivator for getting people to go to the movie is to see those movie stars together. And I think as we lose movie stars, we also lose that sort of genre of film. Right. And you talk about this in your article where um, I think Soderbergh says it's no longer a movie star-led production. It is the IP, the intellectual property, right? Which is what can we adapt that people are already familiar with and will go see as opposed to what stars can we put together? Um, It speaks to another problem where we're no longer putting stars who have chemistry together anymore. They're just who's going to look good on screen and who can we get, (laughs) you know? One of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this is because I am a hopeless romantic. I love love, I love romance, and I love the steaminess that comes usually in in the midst of all of that. Um, And because, you know, these big movies in the box office aren't really doing it for me because they are so unsexy or, you know, are so chaste. Uh, I've been getting a, my fix, my little steamy fix from Netflix, other streaming services like MHZ Choice, uh, Acorn TV, all these places that have a lot of international um, foreign film and TV, even older movies that are popping up on services like HBO and Peacock and things like that. Um, is that a pattern that you've noticed as well, that Sex scenes, whether they are explicit or not, are becoming more readily available on streaming services as opposed to in the theater. Yeah, definitely. I mean, part of it is that Netflix doesn't have to answer to a rating system. So when we just had NBC, ABC, whatever, um, there was a rating system. So they weren't creating TV that wasn't going to air on the network. There was HBO, of course, but HBO was unique. Um, Now, Every streaming service can just exist on the Internet without having to deal with the television rating system. So they can put anything on, really. And um, if their hope is to sort of attract people to the streaming service with content that they're not getting elsewhere, it makes sense that we would see more steamy shows, more steamy movies that are explicitly created for streaming um, as opposed to being put in movie theaters. Right now, we're going to take a quick break. And if you want to hear more from Eliana and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment, where today we're going to share our favorite sexy moments on screen. You may be surprised by some of our responses. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows just like this one. So to learn more, please go to slate.com slash the waves plus. We took it all. 
we brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And welcome back to The Waves. Thank you for joining us again. I'm Nicole Perkins, and I am talking to Eliana Doctorman about the death of the sex scene in film and television. Eliana, it seems like every two weeks or so, a tweet will go viral, and it's asking, why do we even need sex scenes anyway? And for me, I think that they can be a safe shame-free way to learn about intimacy because honestly if you think about the other options that we have like talking to our parents looking to our various religious texts or even the very sparse sex education that we receive in school I don't think any of those options are teaching us in a positive way in a shame-free way about sex and sexuality and intimacy but I also think that Sex scenes are a writer's tool for character development or for the plot. Can you think of some examples where a sex scene was pivotal in telling us something significant about a character? Um, And to go a little further, what are some of the benefits of a sex scene? Yeah, I mean, those tweets sort of drive me crazy, in part because one of the alternatives to all the things that you listed is also just porn. And if we're getting our perception of what good sex is or what intimacy is from porn, that's not good. That's very bad. And I worry about an entire generation of kids just accessing porn and thinking that that's what sexy sex is. That's depressing and also beyond depressing, maybe harmful. It's good to see good sex. And I think that sex doesn't always have to be good, too. Like, it can be awkward, and that can say something. When I'm thinking about 
sex scenes that indicate something. The first thing that came to mind was actually on television, which is Succession, a show that I know many people watch right now. And there are multiple sex scenes over the course of several seasons of that show between Shiv and Tom, sort of the main couple on the show, where she clearly is getting off on demeaning him in a way that at first he is sort of submissive to. And then over the course of time, I think he sort of realizes this is less of a game for her than how she actually perceives their relationship. And he starts pushing back on that. And I think that it does trace sort of the breaking apart of that marriage um, through how they are intimate with one another, how they talk to one another when they're intimate. That sort of is something that comes to mind. Another TV show that comes to mind that deals with sex in a very interesting way for the plot is Sex Education, which is a Netflix show about high school kids sort of fumbling around trying to figure out how to have good sex, bad sex, awkward sex. That show does a very excellent job of showing our main characters sort of exploring sex and figuring out their sexuality. There is a character on that show who is gay but has never had any sort of sexual interaction with a man before, and he ends up having sex with a closeted teen. And there's just so much built-up tension and shame in the closeted character in that show, and I think that the sex scene really reveals how both characters are feeling about their relationship and what will eventually become issues in their relationship in terms of this character being closeted. One of the examples that I recently gave in response to a viral tweet about this subject was the movie Unfaithful and Diane Lane's character in Unfaithful and that she has an affair with this um, very handsome French bookseller who also happens to be a former boxer. So it's just hot all over. They have a lot of very passionate and intense sex. And I think that that was important for us to see not only because they're beautiful people or whatever, but because we needed to see like the contrast between what she was experiencing with the person she was having the affair with and her husband and, you know, her married life at home in the suburbs. We need to see what was it about this relationship that made her risk her marriage. We had just seen them kiss and then we had a fade to black. That wouldn't be enough to get to the point in the end where her husband confronts him and then there's a whole thing. I don't really want to spoil it, even though it's like a 20-year-old movie, but we need to know why did the husband feel so strongly to go after this guy? It couldn't have been just a kiss. What was going on? So we get to see a lot of different elements about who she is as a result of this affair and as a result of the explicit sex scenes that we saw. Another more exaggerated example of like power dynamics and sex is Gone Girl, which I think about that absolutely bonkers sex scene, which comes towards the end of the movie, and I don't totally want to ruin for people, but it is a situation where the woman has not had a lot of power in the situation, and she takes the power back during sex in a very traumatic way. And I think that while, again, it's like the most traumatic, David Fincher-y, over-exaggerated version of like the absolute bloodbath that you could imagine, it is important that it's happening in that sexual context because she has been so sexualized throughout the movie, because she has been so objectified, because she's being made to be what men expect her to be. And part of her taking back that power is flipping the script and using sex as a weapon as opposed to having sort of 
sexuality foisted upon her. And I think that it can be very potent when it's used in a way that reflects these sort of power dynamics between a man and a woman or a woman and a woman, a man and a man, whoever. Right, exactly. So we need these different moments of character sexual development in order to let us know where these characters are going in their mindset at the time. And that is why. So anyone who puts out that tweet of, why do we even need sex scenes anyway? We just gave you like a shit ton of examples as to why (laughs) sex scenes can be very important. But I wanted to go back to something you talked about with ratings. Film and TV ratings will say smoking, explicit content. We have all these different ways of letting the audience know what's coming in this particular piece of media. But why do you think these ratings and disclaimers are still not enough for people who want to eliminate sex completely from our movies and TV. I'm going to, rightly or wrongly, ascribe this to the Puritan American um, ideals, where for whatever reason, we are just so much more uptight about sex than we are about guns, which I can't even begin to understand why. But when you look at, for example, like some of these superhero movies that we were talking about earlier that'll have a PG rating or whatever to get everybody in, there's an immense amount of violence. And we have no problem with exposing our children to violence, but we do seem to have a problem with exposing our children to sex. And I can't quite wrap my head around the psychology of that, except that it's rooted in religious principles that our country was founded upon and have somehow managed to still hang on and trickle down. You certainly don't see quite the same amount of stress about it in European countries as you do in the U.S. I guess the fear is that kids are going to stumble upon something on streaming that their parents don't feel is appropriate. It feels somewhat new to me, even though I'm saying that this dates back to Puritanism, because as I put in my article and I kept bringing this up with directors I was interviewing in this article and they were both like, what are you talking about? I don't remember this. Is that if you go back and watch Ghostbusters, a movie that I'm sure most of us saw as children and definitely in the 80s, just like kids are seeing that movie, there is literally a joke about a ghost performing oral sex on Dan Aykroyd's character in Ghostbusters. And I brought this up with multiple, you know, directors of various ages who were just like, what are you talking about? Go back, watch it. It is a big part of that movie. And I saw that as a kid and it didn't even like register with me because why would I know? And of course, when I watch it now as an adult, I'm like, oh my God, like my parents let me watch this when I was six. That used to just be such more like, especially in comedies, like a casual part of films. And it just feels like we've really just tried to eliminate that and root it out. And I'm not necessarily making a value judgment. Show your kids whatever you want. But um, it does seem like there's just this fear about over-sexualizing children. And I think a lot of people tend to confuse sexuality with pornography. And then they are conflating the language of consent and sexual trauma with their disinterest in sex scenes, right? So you'll have people say, I feel weird because I'm not sure if the actors consented to me watching them in this scene. Or they'll say something like, I didn't consent to see this kind of nudity on screen, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that that is very dangerous. That is a very slippery slope of weakening the language that we can use for people to... Um, you know, to express their bodily autonomy. What are your thoughts on how we can find balance 
and making sure that actors are not being exploited, um, but also recognizing that sexuality is a part of the human experience. It is a part of humanity. And that means it's going to be mirrored in the art that we consume. So how can we, how can we find this balance if it's possible? Yeah, I mean, one thing that's happened in Hollywood over the last few years is um, the growth of the intimacy coordinator industry, uh, which essentially is just a person on set that makes sure that everything that has to do with an intimate scene is everyone's consenting to and has been talked about beforehand and is going okay. And frankly, for this story, um, I spoke to some directors and intimacy coordinators are a little bit controversial in that I think some directors feel like they have a babysitter um, that they can handle it themselves on set. But on the other hand, it's just like a backup. It is a person there who is solely responsible for making sure that everybody's comfortable and like, what's so bad about that? What's wrong with that? And I was talking to Soderbergh about Magic Mike XXL, and he was talking about how they had an intimacy coordinator on set. And, you know, there would be a scene between Channing and Salma um, where, you know, things were very intimate. He was performing a very intimate striptease on her. And the intimacy coordinator would kind of come in and be like, okay, like, are we good with X, Y, Z? And they would be like, yep, we're all good. And that's it. If they feel comfortable, it's sort of a three-second conversation. And why not have that to just make sure everybody is comfortable as opposed to not having that check on set, in which case things can go off script and it's when things go off script that things go awry. It's very possible to do it if everybody just acts responsibly. And I think that studios need to trust directors and intimacy coordinators to act responsibly and directors and intimacy coordinators need to act responsibly, as do actors. Deep down, you do. No. Once. No, no, I don't. To fuck me. It's a bad idea. No. Pim Badgley recently decided that he no longer wanted to do sex scenes for the, the TV show and just in general in his acting career. And I interviewed him for Harper's Bazaar and we talked about that because he received a lot of pushback about that. Part of that was because the language that he used was his fidelity in his marriage was very important to him. And so people were like, but it's just a job, right? There's nothing happening between you. You can disconnect from your character, move on and go back home to your wife. Why do you need to say that this job is a threat to your fidelity or something like that? Um, and there was also some criticism about the fact that you is a very violent show. He is playing a serial killer who commits a lot of heinous crimes and is it okay for him to simulate murder but not simulate sex scenes? Like, what does it mean? Again, it kind of goes back to that question of why is violence okay but not sexual intimacy? He gave a response of, you're simulating murder. Those people are still alive at the end of the scene, that kind of thing. Whereas when you are in an intimate scene, your skin is against somebody, your mouth is on somebody, that kind of thing. And it just creates an uncomfortable situation. And he also wanted to make sure that people understood that his 
desire to step away from sex scenes was not new. His first role was in a movie called The Fluffer, and he was a child in that movie. And he was playing the young version of, I think, a sex worker and an adult entertainer or something like that. So his first role (laughs) was him being in a sexual situation as a child. So it's always been in his mind that he wanted to step away from that, but he didn't feel like he had enough clouts or experience to be able to say, no, I don't want to do this anymore. And I completely understand that. I completely understand that a lot of people just don't feel comfortable with that. I do think that actors should have boundaries and should be able to say, no, I don't want to do this. If it is central to the plot in the way that in season four of you, we do see Joe Goldberg have sex with someone, but they're fully clothed. It's not very explicit. There are ways to work around it. And I mean, you can always bring back the body doubles of the 80s and 90s and things like that. I think there are actors that don't want to do it. And then there are actors who are game to do it. And it's just a matter of pairing the right actor with the right role, or as you say, working around an actor's restrictions. And none of that should mean that we can't have steaminess. And part of this, too, is we've been talking a lot about explicit sex scenes or sex scenes. It's also just like romance is gone. (laughs) Like, Where are the rom-coms? Where are the romantic dramas? Those things have sort of disappeared along with sex and steaminess and attraction and flirtation are important to have in our movies too and enjoyable to watch because if you like romance then you want to watch that too so i think let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. thank you so much eliana doctorman for joining me today on the waves where can our listeners find you online? You can find me, uh, my Twitter handle, as long as Twitter still exists, is edoctorman, D-O-C-K-T-E-R-M-A-N. And um, on time.com, that is where I write, or in the magazine if you're a print person. Excellent. Thank you so much. You have been amazing. Yeah, thank you. This was so fun. That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shayna Roth and Tori Dominguez. Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio. We would love to hear from you. Email us at thewavesatslate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.